Center for Continuing Education, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for this special Nursing Grand Round session entitled Staff Stress First Aid, an Evidence-Based Model of Care to Support Each Other During Stressful Times at Work, which is a video conference, and our speaker is joining us from Hawaii. Um, I'd also like to welcome anyone that is viewing this session online. Just a few housekeeping details. I'm very excited to tell you about a new way that the Center for Continuing Education is tracking attendance. After the program, you will receive an email from the Center for Continuing Education with a link to your online evaluation. Upon completing your evaluation, your one contact hour will automatically be posted to your online transcript. This ties your, uh, you completing the evaluation to uh, receiving credit, even if you do not need Hour, the Center for Continuing Education would appreciate it if you would take the time to fill out the evaluation because your feedback is very important to us. Please be sure to sign in in the back of the room and you must um, attend at least 80% of the program to receive credit. For those viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, you may email them to me and we will give them to the presenter at the end of the presentation. Also for those viewing online, Please email me within one hour of the conclusion of the presentation it's stating that you participated in the activity live online and include your name <coughs> and zip code. My email address is judith.m as in a, hands at hitchcock.org. Um, I would like to welcome Peggy Plunkett, who is on the planning committee. Peggy was instrumental in pulling this special nursing grand rounds together. And Peggy will be introducing our speaker in just a moment. Um, neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity and, or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Okay. Thank you, Judy. Um, so before Patricia starts, I just want to quickly introduce Patricia because we're very excited to have her beaming in from. So in honor, I actually. Been realizing it wore this like But anyway, so um, I've known Patricia for um, many years, and Patricia has been our partner from the VA PTSD Center, the National PTSD Center, in helping us to design our staff to staff support during disasters and other clinically um, stressful experiences for our staff. So first, um, I want to say that uh, Patricia has her PhD from, in clinical psychology from Catholic University and a postdoc fellowship from Harvard. And as I said, is most instrumental through the PTSD National Center. And so she's really an expert on disasters, emergencies, and helping both victims, their families, as well as uh, staff. And she has been one of the co-author of the uh, evidence-based standard for um, guidelines for caring for staff and their families after disasters, which is called psychological first aid, and then more recently has adapted that for staff-to-staff -staff support during and after disasters and emergency situations. And this is called stress first aid. And again, I want to emphasize it's evidence-based. It's the national gold standard, and we are very excited that she is willing and able to provide this education for us. So thank you, Patricia, and it's on to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's always a little bit strange to be looking at my own slides instead of the group. So um, I hope that we can get through this uh, fairly smoothly. Um, it's very nice to be here. I wish that I could have been there in person with you all, um, but it just wasn't in the cards for us. So we'll do the best we can today and try to get through this um, as smoothly as possible. Um, and I think we'll be able to take some questions at the end. So um, I want to start with uh, what is stress first aid? So the definition is that it's a very flexible framework. It's not meant to be a, um, you know, step by step. You have to do this first, this second, this third. It's meant to be a framework that's supposed to give you guidance about how to quickly assess and respond to stress reactions that result from both personal and work stress, because we're really well aware um, that a lot of the stress that people bring to the job might not be related to critical incidents at work and may, may be much more related to other things that are going on in people's lives. It's also meant to be a way to preserve well-being and prevent further harm so that we can promote people being able to recover on their own, not have to receive formal interventions, but to really support them so that they have the resources that they need to get back on their feet if they're having a difficult time. 
And it's also meant to be a practical tool. We've, um, I'm pretty passionate about this. I, when I was uh, working as a clinician with both adults and children, I was in a, a very busy practice in the Navy, and we were seeing six to eight patients a day. And I was really well aware that I didn't have time to be looking at the research. And so I was just, you know, kind of doing my job. Um, because of that, since I started this job, I've uh, been really uh, very passionate about wanting to create tools that are really practical and pragmatic, relatively easy to use. Um, and we hope that this is used whenever it's needed, um, not just in a group setting, not just after a critical incident, but really when it's needed for yourself and for your peers. So the essential skills for stress first aid are to recognize when a peer or yourself has a stress, what we call stress injury. I'll talk about that in a minute. To act, if you see something, say something. A lot of times when we're in a work situation, we don't often take the time to do that with people. It doesn't have to be a long conversation. A lot of times just knowing that somebody's paying attention and caring about us can make a big difference in somebody's lives. So say something to the person or, or to if you don't feel comfortable enough talking to that person to say something to a trusted support, somebody else who might know the person a little bit better. And then the third is the, the third skill is to know at least two trusted resources that you might want to offer to somebody in, uh, who might be going through a difficult time. So before we get started, I want to just mention, you know, why are we talking about a peer support model? And we've, you know, as, as Peggy said, we originally developed this model for uh, Navy and Marine Corps personnel, and we've gone on to adapt it for first responders, EMS personnel, and we're currently adapting it for um, police officers, law enforcement, as well as Amtrak employees. Um, but in the process of developing it across these different settings, we looked at the literature on peer support. We found that people who are exposed to traumatic and loss events generally cope on their own, and some go on to have other problems. Um, and when I was looking at the research for uh, uh, more formal mental health interventions for traumatic stress, for instance, I was struck by the fact that in the methods section, they reported that in a number of different studies, the average time for a person to present for mental health is about 10 years after a traumatic event. So people generally, I think it's human nature to try to take care of yourself on your own before you go on to seek formal treatment. So when you're looking at a situation in an environment such as where you all are working, 10 years is a long time to be struggling or suffering with something. And we know that in most settings, that generally tends to be the case. We know that people are unlikely to seek help, and there's evidence to suggest that early management of traumatic stress exists. So when we look at the peer support programs, the evidence says that um, these programs, when they're put into place, have resulted in significant gains in areas of self-esteem, empowerment, confidence. People tend to be better able to make decisions. They have better social and overall functioning. We, see, we do see a reduce, uh, reduction in psychiatric symptoms and reduced isolation. We also see larger social networks and increased so, uh, support seeking, greater pursuit of educational goals and employment, and greater capacity to deal with adverse life events. Now, this literature is fairly young. There's not a lot of really good studies, but we, we were uh, hopeful to see a number of studies in military environments and another high-stress job environments showing that when you implement a peer support program, you do see gains in people. So when we first started to develop stress first aid, we, we started with our model of psychological first aid, which was a model that was developed based on a number of different findings. Um, but we really took a look at the literature on resilience because when we started to adapt this for peer support, we knew that we were going to be dealing with populations of people who generally are fairly well-trained, generally fairly strong individuals. Usually when you're in a caregiving role, you're a person who has a natural kind of resilience, a natural sort of um, uh, strength that is, uh, you know, makes you a person that other people are drawn to and you tend to have an, an outflowing of wanting to support others. So when you look at the resilience literature, we see, you know, just I won't go down the entire list one by one, but we see that there are certain factors across a very broad literature on resilience that tend to show up again and again and again in people who are able to recover from adverse life circumstances. And these tend to be things like having trusted, helpful connections with others. It doesn't have to be a very broad, support network, but just having people that you can rely on and feel that you can uh, turn to if you need to. 
an ability to look beyond uh, the current situation and an ability to accept what's going on and say, okay, what do I do from here? An ability to focus in on those things that uh, are most important in, in your life and prioritize and to set realistic goals for yourself and to reset those goals depending on what's happening in your life. Taking decisive actions tends to be related to resilience. Looking to learn from experiences is kind of a way of saying that people are um, in a mode of, I'm going to learn from mistakes as well, versus a person who takes every mistake very hard and kind of beats himself up about it. And a person who's looking to kind of develop themselves so that they have more confidence tends to do better as well. So these are some of the things that we see. We tend to also see that, that resilience is very individualized. So some people um, are much more likely to be resilient based on being very decisive, moving forward, being a problem solver. Other people tend to be resilient in a very different way. They're much more apt to be resilient because they learn how to take care of themselves well and do kind of emotion-focused coping taking walks, taking, you know, talking to others, that type of thing. So the, the literature generally says that the most important thing is finding flexibility and balance in a person's life. And each person is going to be very different in the way that they do that. We also um, based our model on a long kind of uh, journey of trying to find answers for SAMHSA, the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Association, who was involved in disaster response. So they asked us to take a look at a very broad-ranging uh, literature on traumatic stress and loss for disasters and in other settings because disaster literature is, is limited. And um, we did a number of literature reviews. We conducted a number of surveys. We talked to researchers as well as clinicians. And we had expert panels where we would bring together providers and researchers and ask them key questions. So in one of those expert panels of about 50 people from around the world, we put on the table, what do you do in situations of ongoing stress? So it's not a post-trauma situation. It's a situation where people are in the middle and they're not looking uh, at an easy way ahead as well. Um, and after presenting the literature to them and having conversations about it, we came up with these five elements that seem to be related to um, recovery in a number of different situations. This was across the board in treatment literature, in public health literature, and across a number of different types of contexts. So the stress first aid model is built on these factors in recovery, and these are promoting a person's sense of safety. And this is psychological sense of safety. It's not uh, objective safety. So even if you can move a person a little bit more towards being a little safer or feeling more safe, that makes a big difference in recovery. The second one is promoting calming. And you see this again and again, probably in the work that you do with your patients as well. So I hope as I go through this model that a lot of you will be nodding your heads saying, oh, that's true. I do that for my, for my patients. And I can also see that I also do it for myself and for peers. What we want to get is some sort of across the board sense of safety, sense of calming, sense of connectedness with others a sense of self and collective efficacy, which is a fancy way of saying a person feels like they can get through what they're having to face in their life. So it may be that uh, their life looks uh, objectively very, very challenging, but if they feel like I can do this, they're much more likely to recover. And the last one is hope. And hope is a broad term. For one person, it could mean that they see around them that there are other people they can turn to. So they have expectations that things are gonna work out. This, is, this reminds me of the quote of Mr. Rogers, uh, the child, um, the, the gentleman who had the program for children, where he, would, he heard from his mother, whenever there's a disaster, she told him, look for the helpers. There are always helpers. Don't focus just on the disaster. There will always be helpers. And this is what a lot of people find hopeful in situations of adversity in their life. They have people around them who are caring and kind. And that, for them, is their source of hope. For others, it's a very deep connection with their religion or their philosophy or their family or their, their tribe or their community. So whatever it is for a person that brings them hope, that's, that's one of the core factors that seems to be very much related to recovery. So as we started working with this model, um, the military uh, came to us and said, we would like you to bring this model to our environment. And for them, for especially Marine Corps, this was about um, six or seven years ago, 
they were really well aware that there are two phases of stress, that, that stress is very necessary for being tough, for growing, for acquiring new skills, for meeting challenges. We've all seen this kind of uh, bell-shaped curve that you get. You, you want to have a certain amount of stress in order to be able to accomplish things. But they were also seeing that stress could be toxic in their environment, that people who were having consistent and persistent distress were having problems functioning. We're also showing misconduct, making more mistakes, and oftentimes leading to substance use and abuse and mental disorders. So the Marine Corps came up with a, a, a schema that they wanted us to map our stress first aid model onto. In the schema, they talk about different zones of stress. The green zone, where we're ready, we're good to go, we're trained, we're focused, we're motivated, we have energy. The yellow zone is more when we start to get into a stress zone. And as you can see here, this can be caused by many different factors in your life. Not just the military uh, job, not just the job that you're in. It can be, it can be caused by uh, boredom, by family problems, by separation from family, by money problems, by harsh weather, by relationship problems. Once you get into the orange zone, though, you would take all of those yellow factors and group them into what we call wear and tear. Wear and tear is what occurs when you have all of these stressors or one or two really strong ones that occur over time. And that is one factor that leads to orange zone stress that a lot of people take for granted. They don't focus on it. They don't realize that they're under a lot more stress six months into having these multiple stressors than they were one month into it. They also wanted to add on and acknowledge that once you get into the orange zone, you also are looking at more intense stressors like loss, loss of colleagues, loss of your own functioning, loss of being able to spend time with family, that type of thing, and life threat, as well as one they call moral injury. And I'll explain each of these in a, in a little bit more detail in a minute. So they wanted to really uh, clarify that in the yellow zone, it, the analogy is bending from stress. It's very common. It's normal. It generally goes away in most people. If, you, if you're in, the, in the, the stress reactions in the yellow zone, you may have them, and they may be very troubling, but they generally tend to go away as the stressors resolve or over time when you have different coping mechanisms. When you get into the orange zone, you're looking at more of what's considered to be an injury in the military, where you start to see damage from stress. You, it's less common. You start to look at situations where you're not functioning as well and you're starting to not be able to control yourself as well and you can be more at risk for going into an illness type of situation. So the stress continuum model looks like this. I know this is a lot of words on the page, so I just want to simplify. In the, red, in the, in the green zone, you're pretty much ready. You're at optimal functioning, adaptive, you're in control, you're focused and motivated, you're calm and steady, and you're even having fun at times, and you're behaving ethically. The yellow zones, we get into this, as I said, the kind of transient, a little bit more mild stress, tends to go away, it's, it's less risk. You might find yourself feeling irritable or anxious, loss of motivation, you're not as focused, you might have some difficulty sleeping or you're tense, not having as much fun. And as we've been giving these trainings across different settings, uh, one person raised their hand and said, can we just acknowledge that yellow is the new green? Most of us are mostly in the yellow zone at all times. And um, that's what I've seen uh, in jobs that are high stress. We generally tend to function mostly in the yellow zone and you kind of go in and out of the green zone. Um, but you also move into the orange zone from time to time when you have this more severe, persistent distress. You, you see that the features of this are this kind of loss of control. You're not as as well able to control yourself when you're angry or upset. You might have moments of panic or rage or depression. You're no longer feeling like your normal self and you might find yourself feeling either excessively guilty or ashamed or the opposite, which is you, you start to feel that you have no feelings for others. You lack empathy for others. And then from the orange zone, we're, we're into the, the red zone, which is PTSD, kind of a diagnosable clinical disorder where you really see uh, people having difficulty functioning. And in many of the settings that I'm in, a lot of people acknowledge that there were many people in the red zone that were still functioning in their job. So that the stress uh, first aid model could be operational across both uh, orange and red, depending on the circumstances. We consider the orange zone indicators to be things like recent stressor events. These are things that you see in your environment where you'd have uh, a whole unit that might be affected by the loss of a child who everyone was very attached to, or maybe they got very close to the family. So you really would consider those critical stressor events. 
and you'd want to look for lack of functioning or distress in people after something like this. But you also, one thing about this model that might be different than some other models that you have been exposed to is that we don't want to um, offer stress first aid just because there's been a stressor event. We also want to be looking for some sign of distress in an individual or some change in functioning in an individual. Um, because we are very well aware at looking at some of the literature that many people in a job setting have critical incidents and it's not the thing that causes them to have problems and they actually resent having some sort of intervention because they're, they're trained for their job, they want to just go home and deal with it the way that they want to deal with it. They don't want to have some formal intervention just because there was a critical incident. They actually need to remove themselves a little bit, have some time to, their, you know, to themselves or with their family and don't really want to be talking about it right after the event or shortly thereafter. So we're acknowledging that stressor events have an impact on people, but we also want to acknowledge that you want to be looking for distress and changes in functioning. So we think stress first aid is needed not for all stress reactions. We think that when people are in the yellow zone, they're not necessarily in need of somebody coming up to them saying, are you okay? Because they're maybe just having a bad day or a bad week, and it's nice to have somebody ask them if they're okay, but not to go into, you know, maybe we need to talk about things that would be helpful for you. So we want to be looking for really impaired functioning in their roles, both as an employee, as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend, a sense of not feeling like their normal self. This, as I said, this sense of guilt or shame, depression, loss of control, um, deterioration in their sleep cycles. I think in your job that might be challenging because of the, the shifts that you're on. So sleep might not be one of the indicators you would be uh, primarily relying on. But it, you may see somebody becoming more isolated or becoming obsessive about things that are related to um, an incident that happened. And the stress first aid model in circumstances like this should look something like this. You're looking for the stressor uh, or you're looking for distress or loss of function. It may not be clear to you that there's a stressor in somebody's life, but you start to see that they're acting differently or they're not functioning as well. They're making mistakes or they're more uh, irritable or they're... They're not as uh, social as they used to be. So you're looking for these types of things. And we call that check. This is where you're observing and listening. We also want to coordinate at that point where you're thinking in your head, well, this is a person who's showing some signs of stress reaction, and yet I'm not a person who's close to them. Who do I need to turn to? Or maybe they're showing such decrements in functioning that I need to get them help right away, and I don't feel like the person who should be helping them. So coordinate is also a piece of stress first aid. Cover is uh, a situation where that person needs to feel safe um, or uh, you need to make other people around them feel safe. Now, uh, one of the problems with this uh, schemata that I'm showing you right now is that it implies that you do these cover first, then the next one is calm. And that's actually not the way the model works. We put this in this way because it's a C. It's a big C, and it reminds you that there are seven Cs of stress first aid. But it may be that that person doesn't need cover. They don't need to feel safe. It may be that they need to feel calm. So you would skip over cover, and you work uh, directly on calming actions. Or it may be that they're, they're generally calm. They're not anxious and they don't, they don't feel unsafe, but maybe they're starting to isolate themselves or, or one of their best friends just left the area and they're having trouble connecting or something's going on where they're not in, in touch with people they need to be touch, in touch with. So that's where they get the stress for state action. The next one is called competence, and this is where you're trying to, this is the sense of self-efficacy. We changed them all to C's to help people remember better, and competence was where self-efficacy uh, was in the model, where you're trying to Restore a sense of being able to cope or being able to handle what's going on in their life. The last one is confidence, which was the hope function that I told you about, where you're trying to restore either their self-esteem or their sense of hope in life or in others. And hopefully, as you go through this model, you're going to be continuing to check and coordinate. And the, <coughs> excuse me, the overall outcome will be a sense of wellness in the person. So the functions of stress first aid, it's designed to reduce the person's risk for stress reactions, to continuously monitor. Stress first aid is not something that just happens once and then it's gone. You're going to be watching people. You're going to be paying attention. We were really well aware when we introduced it into Navy and Marine Corps with, with, uh, that our goal was to have a shift in the culture where people started to pay attention and look out for each other a little bit more, and they felt empowered 
to try out some simple things that are related to recovery in people. So we've, we wanted to give them a framework and empower them to implement very simple, basic first aid actions that can help those who are stressed. So we hope that it's designed to offer a spectrum of interventions and to help you monitor where the person is, how they're doing, and to bridge them to higher levels of care when it's needed. Again, it's first aid. It's not meant to change patterns that have been in place in a person's personality or their life for years. It's meant to see it, that a person has been functioning okay and something's going on and they're not functioning as well or they're more distressed and to help them adjust and give them the resources that they need to get back on their feet. What it's not, stress first aid is not just for critical events. It's not just a one-time intervention. It's meant to be something that's in place regularly on a day-to-day -day basis where you are just making sure people are doing okay. You're caring. You're looking out for people. And it's also not a replacement for medical or behavioral health interventions. So if you see that a person's really, you know, in that orange to red zone or they're into the red zone and they really could use some more formal support, you want to be looking to refer them to trusted resources. And your job is to figure out what those trusted resources are. Is it your EAP program? Is it some chaplain on staff who everybody likes? Is it another nurse who's a mentor to everyone who would be a great source of support to that person? Is it somebody else in the, in the, in the local community who would be uh, somebody who could get the person connected with the resources? So it's not meant to replace those interventions, but it's meant to help be a bridge to those interventions. And it's also not a replacement for prevention efforts. So you'll see in Stress First Aid, we don't have a whole training protocol in stress management. We hope that you already have some stress management classes already in place in your environment and that what we're doing is directing you to be more disciplined about putting those prevention efforts into place under times of stress. Right. So you've hopefully already learned them and we're just providing the framework to say, you know what, can you give that person a hand and remind them that maybe during this next couple months they really want to get uh, disciplined about their meditation practice or their reflection or their self-care practice. The core principles that we base this on is that recovery is promoted by augmenting or restoring the leadership that's already in place, the natural peer support that's already in place, the cohesion that you might have in your units or your wards that's already in place. We hope that this supports what's already there, that it should occur wherever and whenever it's needed. It could be a two-minute conversation. It could be a 30-minute conversation. It could be a series of conversations over the course of a few months. Um, it's individualized. It's not one-size-fits-all. And we hope that be because of that, you're able to be empowered to use it in whatever way fits your personalities, whatever way fits your timing and, and, and your resources. As I said, it's an ongoing process and it's meant to be collaborative so that you're working amongst your um, employee assistance program, your chaplains, your nurse uh, mentors, and you're trying to work as a team to figure out, you know, how do we best take care of ourselves? So this is kind of a complicated slide, but let me walk you through it. Um, the, the idea of stress first aid, um, the main thing I want to point out about this slide is it's just not one linear arrow, okay? Uh, the goal is to start by checking. Always, always, always start by observing. So if there's a critical incident, you want to first watch and see if somebody is particularly uh, more affected than another person. Uh, and it may be that that's easy to do because you've been paying attention for the last six months. You've been watching each other. You've been thinking to ask people more, more often, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? You know, this is all kind of based on good what good friends do for each other. So you observe. And once you observe and you see maybe there's a need, this person is starting to act a little bit more withdrawn or they're more irritable, then you approach them. And after you approach them, you have a conversation about how they're doing. And then you decide what's most needed. And it's going to be based on what their reactions are. It's not just, oh, I'm going to do this or that. You first find out what's going on with them. Are they having trouble sleeping? Are they more isolated? Are they feeling guilty? Are they anxious? And for each one of those stress actions, you could have uh, a few different stress first aid actions that could help with that. So for instance, um, if the person is becoming more isolated, you might be instrumental in helping get them connected with others. Maybe a support group, maybe just talking with you is their way of connecting. Or it may be that they're isolating themselves, not because they don't have a 
plethora of friends, it may be that they're saying something to themselves about themselves that's causing them to feel uh, a lack of confidence or causing them to feel guilty or bad about themselves. And because of that, they're blocking, they're putting obstacles in the way of connecting with people. So it may be that you use confidence as your stress first aid action instead of connect. So that's just one example, but each one, we hope that we give you a few different options of how to, how to intervene. So I wanna go into talking more uh, in more detail about each of the stress first aid actions. So the check action, as I said, it's, it involves a number of different factors. One is just to observe, look and listen, try to keep track, um, pay attention, and, and when you're doing your job well and you're able to interact with people, you start to get to know what's going on in their life. You start to get to know about their family and how things are going. And the more you know people, the more you're able to keep track of uh, changes in functioning or distress. So it may be that one person is um, very likely to just blow up when they're under stress and they're very open about their emotions. And so because they're doing this all the time, you realize that when they're under stress, they have a pretty good way of self-regulating by blowing off steam, by complaining and being loud about it. So when you start to see that behavior in them, you're not as likely to say, oh, maybe something's really going wrong with them. Actually, a person like that, you might really start to zoom in and say something's going wrong with them when they stop doing those things and they're more quiet and they're not blowing off steam. And vice versa, it could be that um, you see a person who's generally pretty even keeled, doesn't really you know, blow off steam, doesn't really complain much, and they start to get more and more irritable. They're, start to, they're starting to complain more and more. And that change in functioning or change in the way they behave is really the red flag for you, where you say, you know what, I think something really might be going on with this person. I've, I've been watching them for a few weeks now or a few months now, and I'm seeing that this isn't changing. And so maybe it's time for me to examine a little bit more closely. Maybe I, I want to have a one-on-one -on -one interaction with them where I directly ask them how they're doing, or I gather information from their coworkers who know them a little bit better. And then finally, the last piece of check is just deciding, is this person in a zone that might be helpful to implement some stress first aid? You may decide after you talk to them that they're actually okay, and you're just going to go back to observing, you know, just to make sure they're okay, because some people say they're okay and they're not, right? Or you may decide that they're in a zone that, you know, is so dangerous, they're really not functioning well, you need to have a conversation with them about referring them to an EAP type of evaluation or talking to a chaplet. So those are the core elements of check. And we developed a little tool for people who aren't used to having this kind of conversations. It's based on the Oscar mnemonic, which is you observe, when you decide you want, when you see patterns and you decide you wanna have a conversation with somebody, you state your observations and tell them, you know, um, I'm, I just wanna let you know that I've noticed over the last you know, few weeks that you're kind of withdrawn, you're not as, you know, as joyful you haven't been joking around as much it seems like you know from what I've seen that you're not you're not you know the same person you used to be I just and the reason why I'm saying this to you is not because I'm wanting to butt into your business I'm saying it because I'm concerned as your you know your friend and your colleague and um, that's why I'm you know saying this so that's that's your way of clarifying your role and then you might ask them you know is am I right um, am I off on the right track or am I you know not seeing things clearly here I'm just trying to understand, can you help me understand? And once they, once they tell you, yeah, you know, actually things aren't going well, um, you would want to respond and say, okay, that, that helps me to understand better. Um, are there some ways that I can help you? I know of some things that were helpful for me when I was going through some stressful times, or I know a person who's having a similar experience and maybe it'd be helpful for you to talk to them. And you really kind of lay out, you know, some strategies that might be uh, something that they could try. So um, I want to just, for each one of these, give you a quick example. Um, this is one that we gathered. Um, I try to get to know each of my staff individually. This is a person who was kind of a, a supervisor. So I know their baselines and what could potentially be a red flag. Instead of staying in my office or staying too busy, I make a point to sit and talk with them during breaks. And that helped me when one of my staff members had a pregnant wife and we responded to a stillborn birth. After that call, I took a little extra time to sit and talk with him to make sure he was okay. So it could be as simple as that. It doesn't have to be a formal kind of structured thing you do, but just simply kind of checking in with people. Um, we have, and I'm going to skip through these case studies, but in the slides we have case studies. Peggy and a few other people helped us develop three different scenarios 
um, and one is that a local you know, coach bus overturns. I would recommend that as a group, and I'd be happy to come back and do this with you, or you could do it amongst yourselves, that you take the full set of slides, which I can send you, that has all of these case studies, and use them to practice and, and figure out, okay, how would we want to implement stress first aid in these different scenarios? It's not really possible to do in one hour, but we do have those available for you. So coordinate is a way, as I said before, coordinate may or may not be needed. But the actions of coordinate are to collaborate. You collaborate either with other staff members, or for some people you might want to collaborate with EAP or chaplain or another nurse uh, or family even. You inform those who might need to know. Maybe somebody up the chain of command needs to know. A supervisor needs to know this person's not functioning well or they're drinking more or they're coming to work, you know, uh, taking prescription medications that might interfere with their work. It, it could be any number of different scenarios. In some settings, you can inform family and peers. In other settings, that is not kosher. It's not okay to let family and peers know. So we, we include it in there, but we're really well aware that confidentiality could be a big problem in informing people. That's something that needs to be discussed locally within your group. Uh, and the last coordinate is referring, so recommending resources, consulting with people. We've had some people in some settings know very well that a staff member would not be open to going to the uh, employee assistance program. So what they've done instead is they've used the employee assistance program as a consultant. And they themselves say, listen, they're not going to come to you, but are there some ways that I can talk with them? Can you educate me as to ways that I could be helpful for this person? So they've, they've worked it that way. And for some individuals who are very clearly in the red zone and not functioning well, and they've just kind of been hiding it from everyone, it may have to involve a direct handoff where you actually walk them somewhere and hand them to the next person who needs to have hands on them, uh, if that's the case. So reasons for referral are things like posing a threat to themselves or others, or you're not certain where their stress level is, they're not talking with you, and you're, you're really getting you know, some indications that they're very impaired in one way or another. You have some suspicion that there might be some facts missing, and you really aren't, just aren't, aren't sure whether this person's open with you. Um, or you've noticed over time they're really worsening, even if you've applied some stress first aid, they're not improving. Another example for coordinate is we had an irritable, difficult nurse who wouldn't open up to anyone, but we knew a good friend of hers, this happened to be somebody who had retired recently, and they let the friend know that we had some concerns. Shipped the crew person out hiking, made more time to do things with her, and after that we stayed in touch with her friend to make sure the nurse was doing okay. Again, this is not where the person would be a threat to themselves or others, but they're worried about this person. Uh, in this circumstance, they did not share details of what was going on with this person with their friend, but just wanted to make sure that they were still getting support. Now, moving away from check and coordinate, once you get into the actual core actions, cover involves things like it could be in the moment they're not feeling safe. Maybe there's been a workplace violence situation, or maybe there's been a flood of uh, people coming into the, you know, setting that they're in and they're not feeling safe. So it could be just an immediate sense of safety where you're standing by, ready to assist, watching and listening, knowing that person knows that you're there to help if needed. You're, or it could be if they're, if they, as a result of their stress action, they're frozen or they're just not functioning well, you get their attention and you talk with them and say, listen, I'm here, you're okay. You get them grounded again so that they can feel safe again. Another way to make a person feel safe is just by warning them, listen, you're, you're about to do this or there's something happening you need to be aware of and you're there to protect them, literally sometimes, you know, moving them out of harm's way or assisting them in whatever way is going to make them safe. Another action of cover is protecting others and warning others. If this person is not safe in one way or another, how can you protect the others who are in their care or working with them? And finally, more longer term is encouraging a perception of safety within the workplace where you're providing as a supervisor or as peers a caring presence. All of us have had this experience where there's, if there's a caring supervisor or somebody on staff who's very warm and, and kind, it has an effect on the entire uh, unit, the, the entire workplace. Uh, finding a way to reduce chaos or reduce danger and making that a priority in the workplace can make people feel safe. And just being there, listening, communicating, taking feedback from people can encourage this perception that you're there to help uh, make the workplace more safe. 
So examples of a need for cover. Staff member isn't cl thinking clearly. Maybe they're exhausted. Um, they're not making good decisions because of stress. Maybe a staff member has frozen or panicked in a life and death situation. Uh, maybe they feel guilty uh, when they report to work because the family is, is feeling anxious because there's been a recent workplace violence situation and uh, their family's trying to get them to quit and they just feel guilty. Uh, so they're stressed out because of that. Um, a staff member maybe has threatened others. Now, again, this is some of these are probably very rare, but we wanted to include them all in. Uh, or maybe they're a threat to patient safety because of their high stress levels. Or maybe they've expressed serious thoughts of suicide. One example of providing cover, um, after a workplace violence incident, my staff members were telling me they couldn't go home. They felt more vulnerable, so we had a family meeting. We brought families in. We talked to them about uh, prior situations and how people got through them. And then the staff members felt less pressure. Um, calming actions. I think these, for most of you, are probably pretty common sense. Um, we broke it down into four types of calming actions. One is just to quiet the person down, get them to get their heart rate. If they're really anxious or they're starting to panic, get them to sit and relax, stop any physical exertion, reduce this kind of hyper alertness that comes when a person is very much um, not feeling safe. Getting them composed. Many of you, I imagine, are masters at this, right? And the supervisors who are good supervisors do this all the time, where the, if the person is starting to show that they're really stressed, they draw their attention outwards. They distract them with another task. Why don't you go over here and get me this, just to get them refocused. And then later they mentor that person, help them get themselves composed first and sit down and teach them in a kind way. Okay, how do, how do we do this differently next time? Fostering rest uh, is something that people often need when they're uh, in a very stressed uh, state, where just giving them a, a time to recuperate, take a, a break, take a nap, take a time out. Some people actually put this into policies and training where they try to find ways to foster rest among, amongst others. And lastly is this kind of soothing action where you're giving the person information. Sometimes people just need information to calm down. Uh, sometimes they just need to, to be able to talk to somebody who's just listening, is a good listener, and that reduces their you know, intensity and their stress reactions. Some examples, um, a nurse is pacing and wringing her hands while on duty in the ward. She's just heard that her son, an army sergeant deployed in Afghanistan, has been seriously injured. So I like that example because it doesn't have to just be work stress that causes people to be in a, a highly stressed state. An EMT responding to a multiple vehicle crash is talking too fast, not reacting appropriately to commands or questions. An intern punches his locker and is yelling and kicking things. He's just returned from responding to a baby in a coma after being shaken by a parent. So you see some of these actions for calm can be just in the moment type of things where you help a person compose themselves. It could be that you give them time off. It could be just simple, you know, as I said, first aid actions that can really make a difference. And a lot of these things, as I said, I'm hoping as we go through this that you guys are nodding your head saying, oh, yeah, I, I would do that. Or, yeah, we do those kind of things for our staff. Um, uh, and what we hope this model does is actually validate what you're doing and tell you and show you how important it actually is, because many people take these things for granted. They actually are very important. Sometimes in my trainings, I say one of the only ways you can really get how important it is is to imagine what would happen if you didn't do those things. If you just let a person keep pacing and wringing their hands, walking around, being anxious, and no one tried to be kind or tried to offer them support. Imagine what the outcome would be like versus somebody actually stepping in and trying to be of assistance. So for all of these, even though they look kind of common sense and simple, they actually can have a huge effect on a person in the moment. We also laid out, uh, in the calming, we laid out a few procedures for different types of situations where a person might not be calm. One is for angry individuals. And um, I won't go through all of these, but just, you know, simple distractions. Simple ways of diffusing, having the person look at things differently, or taking a time out, taking a break, talking to somebody. We also created um, calm procedures for people who are bereaved. It might be a, a person on staff who's just lost a beloved patient, or a family member, or a friend, or another staff member. And what we heard over and over again, and this probably, I hope, fits with what you guys have experienced um, from people who've been in settings like that, is just to be present, be kind. Stay quiet. Don't try to make the person feel better. Don't rush them into looking on the bright side, but just let them know that you're there in whatever way they need. Um, if they want to talk, you listen and provide support. And then you keep checking in. Bereaved individuals in particular, 
usually have kind of a long-term pattern of they'll, they'll pull it together at the beginning, and it might not be months until months later that they start to have stress reactions, um, and they are going to be triggered by things that remind them of the person. So you have to be alert for that kind of thing as well. Another example we came up with, um, after we had a couple of particularly tough shifts, I brought pistachio nuts in for the staff uh, because shelling pistachios takes time and makes people slow down, so it gave us a chance to unwind and actually talk about what had happened. Um, and the person said, doing something supportive doesn't have to look like a mental health intervention. In, in fact, the best interventions are often the least noticeable ones. Um, for connect actions, um, we have, again, connect is, is a pretty straightforward um, and we have three different ways to uh, have this be enacted. One is just to be with the person yourself. If they're having a tough time, you just maintain your presence, keep your eye contact, listen, empathize. Another is to promote connection with others. So finding trusted others who they can connect with, fostering contact with others. Maybe on staff you're not allowed to carry a, um, a cell phone. That happens with our Amtrak employees. They're not allowed to have a cell phone. So if something happens, they don't have any way of getting in touch with their family member or friends. So sometimes an outside person could come in and say, hey, you want to use my cell phone? It's as simple as that so they can talk to family member or friends. Or finding a way to encourage contact with others who might be good supports for them. And in our model, we're aware that there are different types of support. And we're not trying to say that everyone needs to sit down and talk about their feelings. Absolutely not. I know that particularly people in medical situations, actually don't like to talk about their feelings, right? You get very practical and pragmatic, and you also see enough hardship in your job that you don't really want to just wallow in your own feelings a lot of times. So we're aware that there are different types of social support. One is just instrumental support. You see this after funerals. People bring food, right? People bring, you know, simple uh, resources that can help with daily tasks. Hey, let me take something off your hands. You're having a tough time. You don't need to talk to me about it, but I'm going to take this for you today. Um, and you go do what you need to do. Informational support, sometimes just giving uh, guidance about how to handle something that a person doesn't know how to get through can be helpful. And then emotional support is another one that can be helpful for people. And again, I would want you to convey all of these stress first aid actions in a way that fits your personality. In all of my trainings, I always tell people, if I come back six months from now and you're offering stress first aid in the way that I would offer it, I would consider that a failure. Because what we want you to do is adopt it for your style and for your time and what your ability is and what how much time you have and what your relationship is with each one of the people that you're applying this to. So it should look different with each person. So uh, going back to connect actions, reducing isolation is the third one. Sometimes there's there are rumors that are going around or people have misconceptions about somebody and they're starting to kind of Stay away from that person. Sometimes your job might be to figure out what's being said and correct some misconceptions or correct misconceptions within the person themselves. Maybe they're putting up obstacles to reaching out because they feel like they screwed up and you have a different picture and you can say to them, actually, no, uh, we all screw up in situations like this or actually, no, there were other factors that were involved and you're being very hard on yourself. So trying to find a way to restore the person's sense of being able to connect with others might be what you do with, with uh, this action. And the last one is inviting and including people in things. I've had um, stress first aid actions that don't look like stress first aid at all. They're just, hey, let's let's have a potluck dinner. Let's just get everybody and like blow some steam and just hang out with each other. That can be very restorative for people um, in ways that you don't even know. And sometimes it can be as simple as that. Or, hey, we're going out bowling. You want to come with us? You know, something very simple that doesn't have to look like a stress first aid action. So some examples. A nurse, young nurse freezes during her first major operation. Although only disabled for a few seconds, she feels ashamed and withdraws from contact with staff members. A favorite child dies after a complicated procedure involving many staff. Some department members feel that better coordination could have prevented the death. Staff not involved in the situation avoid speaking or interacting with those who are involved in and the sense of staff cohesion drops. Uh, an example of applying stress for state, a staff member was drinking all the time. He'd been on staff with someone who died and it was hard to get him to talk to us. He had a kitchen remodeling project underway, so I went over and hung out in his home and helped him. While we worked on it, he opened up and I was able to get him some help. So again, that's not sort of a direct emotional support, it's more indirect, but sometimes people can come around when you're helping them with other things. The last two are sometimes a little bit more, uh, they need a little bit more time to implement. 
And um, as I said, it could be that you implement these or not. But what I like about competence is you're actually introducing skills that the person either has but doesn't realize they really have to implement in a more diligent way, or you're actually introducing new skills that are relevant because their stress reactions have caused them not to function as well, right? Or the stress reactions they have are actually creating um, difficult times for them because they have trauma reminders or loss reminders and they're, they're not even really aware of what's going on and they're starting to feel like they're crazy or something and something's really wrong with me when in fact they're just getting triggered all the time. So your you know, job would be to introduce some skills with how to handle reminders like that. Another set of competence actions are that people sometimes have stress reactions because they're, they're realizing that they're not well trained enough in their job and because of that, they're stressed out all the time. So your job might be to just get them the training that they need so they're not so stressed about their job. So um, we think that stress first aid could be needed either when their lack of experience or training contributes to, to stress reactions, right? So you get them trained. You get them the experience that they need. The second time it might be needed is that their stress reactions cause a loss of previous skills. So maybe they're not functioning as well. They're not as clear. Maybe they're not as controlled. Maybe they're not as motivated. And you say to them, Man, there may be some things I can help you with to get you feeling more motivated or more in control. The third one is their own stress reactions are causing trouble for them. So they're having trouble with the memories or difficulty relaxing, that type of thing. So examples of a need for competence. A nurse who was the target of a violent patient experiences persistent mental confusion and slowed, unclear thinking. A nurse who developed wear and tear stress injury loses the ability to stay calm when dealing with coworkers. A manager who loses a staff member because that person became infected with hepatitis C when they were stabbed by a violent patient becomes hesitant about sending staff into potentially hazardous situations, which actually increases the danger to the entire department. An example of how to implement competence would be our staff had a training on conflict resolution because we saw that when our young staff were under stress, they didn't really know how to manage their irritability and anger. They also didn't know how to communicate directly, effectively and assertively with others. They were more used to texting than talking. So the training helped all of us to improve ways we could handle conflict individually and as an organization. So I'm going to move quickly into confidence. We have five minutes left. Um, and the confidence actions have to do with helping the person rebuild their trust, either in themselves or leadership or equipment or, or peers. Um, hope. For some people, they have to forgive others or themselves or imagine the future differently than they have been. Or maybe th that you help them with their self-worth and self-respect. Or it could be that they're having a trouble making sense or making meaning of the things that they're seeing in their job. And they don't understand. You know, it it's kind of a crisis of faith that a person might be having. So some examples that we've gathered, a nurse whose failure to take proper precautions contributes to the death of a patient and then feels extremely guilty and becomes self-destructive. A nurse who developed wear and tear stress reaction loses respect for her leaders and becomes angry and irritable. A nurse with significant stress suffers lowered functioning, loses her spiritual faith and her professional capabilities and becomes depressed. And an example of how to implement confidence, we had a particularly endearing child die of an unexpected complication after being in the hospital for a while. A number of people felt responsible, so I got them in a room for an after-action review, kind of a debriefing. The ground rules were that they had to keep it to what they saw and did at the scene to get all the puzzle pieces together and to keep emotion out of it. Through the discussion, we were, they were able to see that they weren't the only one responsible or they weren't responsible for what had happened. It was a lot of different factors. So... Again, I, I said we have these work uh, case study, work violence scenario, and I would encourage you, uh, we, we broke it out into um, what do you do to check, what do you do to coordinate, what do you do to cover, what do you do to calm, what do you do to connect, what do you do to help the person feel more competent and to have more confidence. And remember that as you're using stress first aid, you want to be you know, checking, approaching, deciding what's most needed based on the person's reactions, and then picking and choosing one or more stress first aid actions, depending on the situation. The take-home messages, I hope, and again, I have never done this in one hour, so I'm sorry, it's so fast, it's a lot of material, and it, usually it's a, it's a full day training. So what we hope is that you can utilize a flexible, practical approach specific to the need and the context 
and the phase of the recovery. Take care of yourself and your colleagues and then document what you're doing. You know, we, we have very little information about how this might be applied in hospital settings. So if you guys can document what you're doing and what's working and what's not, we're really open. The people who authored this model are very open to tailoring it and tweaking it. If something's not quite right, we'll, we'll change it to make it fit or, um, you know, report on what's working so that other hospitals can benefit from your experiences. So um, with that, I'm going to just say that, you know, we have more resources on stress and trauma on our website. And I'm going to um, try to see if I can get back to seeing you guys. We have just a few minutes um, if anybody has any questions. So just click on that green icon and hit the stop sharing. That should bring you back. Great. Okay. Can you see me now? Or not just not not just questions, but also comments or reactions to this model. Um, again, I know it's a lot in a short amount of time, but does it feel like something that could offer tools for you? Is it is it also are you doing these kind of things already? Does does the framework of it help with with what you're experiencing in your settings? So Patricia, I'm going to come up by the microphone so you can hear. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I, like I the, can. The telephone commercial. Um, so <laughs> in, the, in the past, when we've tried to help staff to do peer-to-peer -peer support, um, some staff feel quite confident doing that with this, and other staff feel like, well, I don't. I'm not really a mental health professional. I don't have those right. skills. I'm nervous about right. this. Can you comment on that? Yes, I can. Okay. So I want you all to think in terms of your own lives. When you're under stress. Is the first person you call your mental health professional? No. <laughs> Usually not, right? I'm a mental health professional. I don't call a mental health professional when I'm, I'm under stress. When I'm under significant stress, I call a friend. I call a family member. What they do for me is helpful. It gets me through the situation, right? So we're not trying to make you into mental health professionals. We're trying to make you into people who apply the skills that you've probably already used with all of the friends and family members in your life to get them through challenging situations, but apply it and be confident to know that those kind of things have been shown to be very helpful in the research settings that we've looked at. If you try to reach out a little bit more with your peers to just be a good friend, a good listener, a kind person, somebody who uh, meets, you know, in, you know, maybe you find out what the resources are, but somebody who has something to offer other than just Here's the case. I'll see you later. You know, but somebody who really actually takes a little bit of time to say what's going on and not taking on that person's whole life because it is first aid. I understand what you all are dealing with in terms of your workloads. It's not about taking on their entire history of mental health problems. It's about just saying, how are you doing? Is there something I can you know, help with? Or I know of somebody else that's going through that. We had some person say that they realized a person was under a lot of distress and didn't seem to be functioning well. They found out that they had a child who'd just been diagnosed with autism. So their stress for state action was to say, I know somebody whose child has autism in this community, and they've had to go find out all this information about it, and they might be a good resource for you. They got the two people connected, and that person was very grateful and said that you just saved me a tremendous amount of time and energy and stress. Thank you. could be as simple as that. All I want to say is that you guys have these skills. You wouldn't have gotten where you are at this point in your life without having some skills of being a good friend. And, and we want you to see that with this framework that when you're talking with people, I use it with my family members and friends all the time. How's my mom doing? How's my husband doing? How's my son doing? Are they feeling safe? Are they feeling calm? Are they feeling connected? Are they feeling like they can handle what's going on? Do they have they lost some sense of hope or sense of self-confidence? How can I help with those things? We know those are the things that are related to people recovering. So I just pay more attention to them now than I used to. I don't refer all those people to mental health professionals. I just try to be creative and figure out how I can help them problem solve or, you know, get to the next step. Again, first aid, so it's simple, it should be practical and easy for you. Does that answer your question, Peggy? Yes, it does, thank you. Any, any other questions from the audience? Or any experiences you've had that seem similar to this? Do you think this is something you could do for your peers? Does this feel like something you're sort of already doing? Yeah, people are nodding. I don't know if you can see that on the video, but 
Great. No, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. And and I would, Peggy, I mean, I'd be happy to come back and join you uh, via Skype or, you know, in this way, or have you take the the case studies that we put together, because there are some particular critical incidents that you guys might want to train for ahead of time. We, we have a, a flood scenario. We have a, you know, a multiple injury scenario and we have a workplace violence scenario. You guys might just want to have like a brown bag lunch and sort of walk through it and practice. What do we do under circumstances like this? So um, I'd be happy to help in any way if you if you want to do that. All right, that's great. And I know this will be helpful for uh, the general staff as well as for our staff support team for our emergency operations plan. So um, unless there's other questions, thank you, Patricia. Um, You're welcome. In from Hawaii. Um, You're welcome. Again, we wish we were all there. but uh, I know. I wish I could have brought you here. Thank you, guys. It was very nice to meet you. Hope I, I hope I meet you again. Thank Bye. You. You're welcome.